Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. Today, we have another very unique story to share. We are talking about the value of fire and traditional cultural burns with Bill Tripp, who is a member of the Karuk tribe who hail from the Mid-Klamath River region in Northern California. Bill is the interim director of the Karuk tribe Department of Natural Resources and is responsible for the environmental management of this region. The Karuk tribe have been conducting cultural burns for millennia and settler colonialism has interrupted these traditional practices through laws that have excluded fire for the most part on native lands. Bill has been practicing cultural burning since he was four years old with his great-grandmother and he got his first lessons on fire after his great-grandmother caught him playing with matches. It's a heartwarming story that demonstrates how integral fire is to the Karuk tribe. We talk about how fire is part of everything that the Karuk tribe do. It's in their DNA. Fire is necessary for healing Karuk land and people in order to make the ecosystem resilient. He talks about how cultural burns help to rejuvenate the land and help biodiversity to thrive. Finally, we also talk about the initiative Bill has been leading for decades to try and bring fire back to the ancestral lands and the challenges of working with state and federal governments. Some of these challenges have included fears of distrust and co-option of indigenous knowledge. But he also talks about recent successes he's had in these partnerships and how the Karuk tribe is one more step closer to reclaiming their sovereignty over fire. This is a very unique story, and I feel just so humbled and lucky that Bill Tripp shared his candid perspectives on the issue. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Thank you again for making time for the podcast and for speaking with us today here. I typically start with this first question, which is, how did your childhood experiences shape your passion for the natural environments? Well, I grew up in a traditional household in our ancestral village of Wunkarak on the, on the Salmon River um, here in Northern California. You know, I was raised with the, the stories and expressions of culture my entire life and participated in ceremonies from starting very early on. And I got caught trying to start a fire in the stove one morning when my great-grandmother was still in bed and sleeping. I was waiting for her to wake up. And so she came out and said, if you're going to be playing with matches, you're going to do something good with it. And so that's when my education on fire started. Mm-hmm. And so I've been working you know, most of my life on bringing fire back to the people and working within the natural systems um, ever since. Mm-hmm. So when we first spoke, you mentioned that you had been participating in traditional cultural burns with your great-grandmother since you were four years old. Could you tell us that story again? Yeah, when I was four years old, I was sitting by the stove uh, waiting for my great-grandmother to wake up and just cracking acorns and thought I was being quiet, but probably wasn't quiet. And it was kind of a little chilly, so I decided I would build a fire in the stove and 
she was over a hundred, well over a hundred years old at the time. So I figured she probably would enjoy being warm when she got up. And so I was building a fire and she must have heard me fiddling around with it in there and came checking on me and said that if I was going to be playing with fire, then I'm going to be doing something good with it. And so, so we went out and started doing some burning out in the, under the black oaks. And, and so that kind of started my education on fire. But uh, every day after that, she'd tell me three different stories of origin stories and cut a culture around fire and animals and to trees and basically who everyone is and why they do what they do and why a person like myself should uphold a responsibility to them. Mm-hmm. I just want to say thank you for sharing that story with us again. It's a fascinating story where you're at such a young age and you are given an opportunity to participate in cultural activity, which for most people would be probably see it as something dangerous, but I think there's such a beauty in that practice where there is, from my perspective, respect and an awe for that agent of nature, which we call fire. And we're going to talk some more about what the role of fire plays within the tribe and the ecosystem in which you depend on. So just to set the stage here a little bit, so you're the interim director of the Kuruk Tribe Department of Natural Resources, and you're responsible for the environmental management of this region. So do you mind telling us a little bit about what makes the region that the Kuruk Tribe are based in, which is, I believe, the Mid-Klamath, if I'm saying it correctly, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is the Mid-Klamath River region, yeah. and that's based in Northern California. So what makes the river region an eco-culturally sensitive place for the tribe? Well, the Kodak people have been here forever. And so our entire culture uh, revolves around this place and the water and the plants, the animals, the birds. And it's kind of unique in that we were one of the last contacted in the lower 48 states, huh. the Spanish never even got up here into these mountains. Mm. They say it's around 40 years later after the Spanish came through the Sierras um, that the Hudson Bay fur traders came into the, the region. And so it wasn't really until a little bit later on when you know you look at the story of Plymouth Rock or something like that, and you know it's hundreds of years since that occurred. But when you're looking at the time frames since contact and kind of when the situation kind of changed around relationships with fire and and the environment, it was fairly recent compared to that that other example. And so you look at around the, the 1850s before the miners really came into the region. It wasn't until 1932 the Forest Service claimed that they had stamped out all the indigenous burning in the region. So, I mean, we're just looking at the matter of one or two lifetimes here in a pretty remote area without a lot of external influence. And so people out here in these rural areas have been able to maintain a really good continuance of their connection to place and responsibility and just kind of kept out of mainstream. You know, people are still out. Uh, burning for hazel and still fishing for salmon and hunting for large game and and all that and still telling our stories and still participating in ceremonies like we have for forever. Mm-hmm. 
That's fantastic. Yeah, and so it's it's not so much that uh, Klamath Region is a, a super eco-culturally sensitive place. Like, you know, I think there are a lot of places out there that are just as sensitive, and there are probably some knowledge holders there that, that are still connected to those things and still have the desire and willingness to do those things, but maybe a little bit more visible and have some more limiting factors. Sometimes it does seem when I go out in the world that the situation here is a little bit unique in some of those respects. Mm -hmm. I had no idea about the timeline in terms of the region being one of the last, I don't even know what the appropriate word for it would be, just to to come into contact with. Yes, European contact, yes. So I read in an article that fire is in the Kirk tribe's DNA. And fired is considered as one that is not just healing to the lands, but also to your people. And so it made me wonder what the value of fire is to the tribe and to the ecosystem. Yeah, well, fire is central to every aspect of coded culture. Smoke carries our prayers and ceremony and even lighting fire specific places at specific times of the year or part of the ceremony that we're supposed to be doing every year. Some of those things continue when it comes to the individual ceremony fires or conducting the ceremonies, but some of the landscape level practices are currently not happening and really haven't happened since 1911 or earlier when the federal law kind of made, made it illegal. And so without fire, we don't have uh, good basket materials for weavers. We don't have quality food for you know, large ungulates. Now, the entire food web is dependent on fire. Mm-hmm. And then when you take it from the system like people have over this past century, that balance in that food web is disrupted because you don't have these micro-scale effects of people and fire and animals repopulating and moving and doing their thing in a smaller-scale environment. But then you end up with this large-scale impact where you're having these big boom-and-bust effects in that food web system. And so really fire helps keep the balance of, of life out here. Right. As I was reading more about the value of prescribed burns from an ecological aspect, I didn't realize that burning of the forest understory maintains oak tree health and it helps to create prairie land, I believe, uh, if I'm even saying that correctly or describing it correctly. Prairie landscapes that the elk and deer can kind of navigate their way through dense woods. So it's really interesting. And another thing that you mentioned when we first spoke is that the carbon from the burning gets into the rivers, which benefits the salmon population, correct? Yeah, there are a lot of things that connect to all those processes. So smoke fills the air, it changes the way the sun shines down and heats water. It does a lot of things. Fire, burning small vegetation that uses more surface uh, water, it creates less water use in the environment, which then can contribute to more flow in the streams, which then can help fish as well. And things like oak trees, conifer trees grow really fast and they shade things out. 
and oak trees do not like shade and they burn really hot and so you don't want to get too many fir trees growing up in an area before it gets to the point to where their needle cast falls on the ground and gets to the point to where it shades things and and then fire really doesn't want to burn through there until conditions are so bad that it burns really super hot and so shortening those time frames between those things is good for all of that and some of our ceremonial practices are directly tied to these things elk being one example of they like to take care of their calves in areas where they can protect their young from wolves and so they like to back into those dense areas in the next to the streams where maybe some huckleberry grows well if you don't have fire then huckleberry fills in everything until it burns up the whole stand and you don't have anything there for them and so having that right mix of nice open meadow for them to eat some nice fresh greens and so dense little thickets for them to hide and protect themselves from wolves while at the same time creating the cover for the rodents but still having enough open space where rodents have to dart out and get food <laughs> you yeah know I mean? wow so, it's just like a chain reaction of just one yeah kind of simple act and yeah it's all connected you know and so you end up with species like the northern spotted owl that just doesn't have access to their food source because you've taken fire of the system yeah and then that creates a compounded effect in the social uh, political systems Mm -hmm. because then you have to protect one species and so you can't do the thing that it would take to actually save the species in some cases and so it it gets pretty complex really quick because you really have to have a far-sighted view to really see how all of these connections link yeah it doesn't seem to be very common these days Mm. do prescribed burns Am I using the terminology correctly when I use the word prescribed burns? Yeah, people call it prescribed burns now. I like to maintain a distinction between prescribed burns, cultural burning, and wildfire. Yes. Just because they all do have separate uh, connotations. This is true. So actually what I've read is prescribed burn has to do more with westernized fire management practices and then cultural burn is more of indigenous and wildfires is what results from poor prescribed burn practices. Is that correct? Yeah. Well, I mean, you can have wildfire that has really good outcomes, especially if it's mixed in with an Mm. indigenous cultural fire regime or even good mix of prescribed fire, cultural Mm -hmm. burning and wildfire. People have a tendency to separate humans from nature and want to regulate human activity and control nature which is it's it's a not controllable thing and so trying to figure out how to use our combination of tools effectively and where the terminology becomes important is with issues like liability and things like that because a prescribed fire gets away someone wants to start suing people you have to have a certain permit for something like that for a prescribed burn or there's all of these things like that that come into play whereas you know Indigenous people have rights associated with this stuff that predate a lot of these laws and haven't actually been removed in any legal sense of the matter. And so it it creates complexity to the discussion, but it also creates space to be able to recognize something that's pre-existing and should be considered a right. Right. So thank you for clarifying that. I didn't get the part about liability, but it makes total sense. It does. So 
traditional cultural burns help mitigate? Well, you said that there are some wildfires that are good fires. Now, the wildfires that we're currently seeing in California, what is that result of? Well, you know, I mean, there's a lot of factors involved. I mean, you've got obviously some changing conditions out there. So you get areas that haven't burned in a long time, and then they burn. They have a tendency to burn a lot hotter. And then it's not always that first fire that really has the catastrophic effects, but it goes through and kills some overstory trees and has a bunch of regrowth that then has a chance to sit there too long itself and try out, and whether it be a drought year or, or even a year that just got way too much rain at a certain time of year and caused a bunch of growth. And sometimes it's that second or third time a place burns after it's been excluded from fire that you actually see the major impacts. With climate change, we've been seeing conditions just on a climate level that are you know, unprecedented, at least in modern history. Yes. Oh. So there's something you said earlier on that piqued my interest, something along the lines of their ideal conditions for cultural burns. So according to the Kuruk, what are some of the principles of conducting those cultural burns? Well, when done right, it's kind of just a, a system of, of interaction with the natural environment. And so a lot of times in the oaks, on the southwest, low to middle elevation, southwest slopes, we would be looking at burning in February uh, to early March. We, we typically get a two-week window in that time frame to where when it's time to burn, it's time to burn. And the conditions that happen in that window, like it's not going to get away. It, it really can't go anywhere. It can go to the shade line and maybe burn into the shade line a little ways, but then it goes out. And then you have a rainy season that comes up after that that then make sure there's not going to have any fires holding over. Right. And so with that being one of the most volatile slopes, and when it comes to fire behavior, it's those low to mid-elevation southwest slopes that the sun beats down on hardest. And so when you're looking at a summertime fire situation with a lightning strike, those areas are already burned. And so as, as fire burns down out of the mountains, it can burn into those things, or a person can actually go and start lighting fire from one of those places mm-hmm. and burn back into the wildfire at, at the right time. And that would uh, prevent those lightning strikes from blowing right down into the village or town or whatever today. Mm-hmm. And then there's also some other timing around some of that based on different soil types, different elevations, different aspects, different uh, food and fiber resources. Now have different burn timing. And so, you know, you get into more of a tan oak type of a situation, which is more on a north slope. Those wouldn't burn in February. You can't even get those to burn after a rain, a good rain in the fall. And so you've got to find that window of time where your indicators are showing that it's right. And it may be right down here in Orleans and not right up in Abbey Camp yet. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah. We watch for the acorns to fall. There's usually a good wind event that comes in September, October, and sometimes it's a little bit of rain, sometimes it's wind, but there will a whole bunch of buggy acorns will fall. And so if you notice that situation and you go out and burn in those tan oaks, you're killing the bugs in those and you're making a better harvest for your acorns next year. 
And if you've done that right, you've just had the wildfire and a February burn <laughs> below you or off to the one side of you. And you're able to use that as a feature to burn into. And so you don't have to worry about a bunch of fire lines or a fire getting away and burning someone's house down. Yeah. Just as you're describing it, there's an art to it that's, of course, backed up with facts for sure. But I was just imagining being there as you were describing the situation on the shade line and when you can burn and what side you can burn and not. And I'd love to experience something like that one day. It just seems like there's a lot more thought that's put into the practice because you're watching nature and nature's giving us indications of when it's ready for a burn and not. And so are you allowed to burn when the conditions are ideal? And if not, why is that? We're not always allowed to. And a lot of times we're asked to burn when it's not culturally appropriate. There's an example of usually in that February window, there's not a lot of people worried about it. There's no permits required during that time or anything like that. It's just we don't have the resources to necessarily do it. Or maybe there's not a NEPA document, so you can't burn from a piece of private property onto the National Forest System or something. Then the Forest Service personnel would require a burn plan and all these things. And so these arbitrary property lines get in your way of actually being able to do it in the right way in a cultural context. And what we see a lot of is a lot of times decisions for burning don't necessarily happen in February because if you're trying to get the agency to help you or something, their fire personnel just simply aren't staffed at that time. And so they got something else going on in their head. They got to hire people. They got to get people through training. And then maybe by April or May, they're starting to get to the place where they have employees that can go do prescribed burns. But then we're in a time when traditionally we wouldn't burn. Once the birds come back to nest, we're supposed to stop. And then when Pleiades is visible, or when Pleiades disappears from the night sky, right there around April there, we're not supposed to use fire for anything but heating and cooking. So that becomes a cultural conflict because that's when the agency is finally geared up to burn. And so we're saying, let's go burn in February. And they're like, oh, oh, we're not quite there. And then they say, okay, we're ready to burn now. It's like, well, now it's too late. It's like, now we can't burn with you. And so unless some of those fundamental issues change, it's like, we're not going to be doing much burning together. And so there is a window in June when Pleiades shows itself again, when, when you can burn some of the grasses and things like that, which is also a very good time to burn uh, to eradicate invasive species. And so there's a very short window for that. Yeah. And so it's just getting to the point to where all of these factors are coming together and we're getting it done at a meaningful scale again. Hopefully we'll see that day sometime soon. Okay, that's good. You mentioned earlier on that there are some laws that have prevented cultural burns to the extent that have been practiced traditionally. The question here is, why has traditional cultural burning, from my perspective, been criminalized and excluded from the ecosystem? Why has cultural burning been excluded? Yes. Why did the U.S. government pass laws to prevent traditional cultural burns to the extent that they were conducted historically? 
Well, one of the first laws California passed when it became a state was specifically around stopping or basically controlling Native American populations from burning. And so that was done early on, you know, in the mid-1800s. But out here, it was still just because someone in Sacramento made a, a law didn't necessarily mean that anyone was enforcing it out here. There was actually an increase in fire use in that time that they're found in the fire record to where settlers and, and indigenous burners were actually burning more frequently than just indigenous practitioners were prior to the gold rush era. Mm. And so it wasn't until right around 1911 with the passage of the Weeks Act that the federal law was imposed that ended up You have stories like the Big Burn and Ranger Pulaski and all these things that are glorified in the story of fire uh, these days. And it basically comes down to fires started by the railroad. Spent a lot of time putting fires out along the railroad and you have bucket brigades of everyone just afraid of fire. They're building towns and fire-prone places. And so it became a a dominant part of the colonial uh, system, um, colonization of the West. And so there's a long window of time went by where fires were put out along those railroad tracks to where when fun finally started, that couldn't they couldn't catch. It got really big, and they called that siege of 2000 or it was 1910 or whatever. And so it was those that fire, the big burn of 1910, was the fire that ended up causing the Weeks Act to be passed. And so after that, the Forest Service they ended up charged with, with putting fires out and um, they ended up establishing a 10 a.m. policy to where every fire was to be put out by 10 a.m. the following day. Though I don't think that the Weeks Act specifically said to stop indigenous burning, I think it ended up being a collateral damage in the process. Mm. Interesting. What does the Weeks Act stand for? Weeks was the last name of the legislator i believe that drove it i think he was from boston interesting i'm just gonna look this up later (laughs) to expand my knowledge on this issue well and there were some really interesting things that i learned over there when i went to the national cohesive wildland fire management uh, strategy workshop last year Mm -hmm. which was in plymouth massachusetts and so they told a little bit of a story about some of the good things that the weeks act did for them over there is they actually it actually created a system where there was more local involvement in the way fire was managed. So it's interesting to compare the two, you know, looking at how that happened. I mean, it didn't necessarily put much authority in the hands of indigenous population, but the system that was established in the contemporary society, I guess, actually had a lot of things that we strive to achieve over here today to try to create more fire trying to get people to work together and trying to respect people's space to be able to make their own decisions and determinations on what needs to be done. And so it's just kind of an interesting contrast on the effect of the act, the East versus the West. Fascinating. So you talked earlier about how you're starting to come to an agreement with the state and federal authorities on being able to resume those traditional practices and you also mentioned that you're trying to bring back fire to 
the land. And you've been trying to do that for a few decades. So how are you collaborating with the National Forest Service and California Fire to bring back fire to the land and get the sovereignty back? And what are some of the challenges that you're facing as you're going through this process of collaboration? Well, we've been working on consultation and coordination with the Forest Service for for the better part of three decades now. So this whole fire question has been at the center of our conversation ever since. So we started having more of a government dialogue. But as a parallel effort, we started to build ally networks with both indigenous and non-indigenous groups on local, regional, and national scales. Because ultimately, in the beginning, we could talk till we were blue in the face about why we needed to do this, and no one would listen. But if you could get a respected member of society from a non-Indigenous group to say the same thing, it all of a sudden became the greatest idea since sliced bread. And so... We use that as a strategy because it's hard to tell someone no when they're telling someone else yes. And so at least it's easier to argue your point. So that's been a long road, but an effective one. And at this point, there's just, I mean, there's always been people that thought that this fire exclusion idea was just a bad idea. And so there's plenty of allies out there in this conversation space. and. Slowly but surely, the policies are changing and the people in the positions and the agencies are becoming more more supportive. The liability question is something that just as always comes down to in the end. But I mean, we started to do uh, build a collaborative network a uh, long time ago. And more recently, we were having discussions around in-stream restoration to protect salmon in Klamath Basin, and we couldn't come to any agreement on what to do for upslope management. But we knew that upslope management needed to occur in a way that helped to sustain the benefits of whatever we're able to do in stream to recover the fish. And you look at the fact that there's dams on the river, you look at the fact that climate change is happening, and, and we're getting all these record temperatures and flood events. And else out there in the world and we need to combine all of these things to where we're using fire and we're managing the forest in in a way consistent with our culture because that maintained all these systems through change in the past yeah most likely our best pathway forward and so we were at the verge of gridlock on our collaborative efforts here um, around 2012 And so the Nature Conservancy uh, Fire Learning Network said they would come and facilitate the dialogue. Mm -hmm. And so we were able to actually have an external party come in and facilitate the conversation. That really took us a long ways because we were able to agree to disagree on some things and agree to test our own belief systems on some other things. And so, you know, now we're to the point to where we're writing NEPA documents together the tribe's actually managing timber contracts, which is something that we kind of pushed back on for a long time just because we didn't want to get caught up in that system of having to be reliant on it. 
of a non non indigenous uh, purpose for being basically, and so things are happening really good now in that respect. And I think that if we can overcome some of our issues with stabilizing some budgets, so we can train people to do these jobs, and if we can get past the liability question and be able to use some of our own folks in making this happen. I think we're not that far from being able to make meaningful change. That's great. That's really good news after many decades, but it's starting to pay off. I can't help but think about how kind of decades of maybe distrust doesn't necessarily just go away over a few workshops over months. How did you and your team kind of overcome that? Well, I mean, I wouldn't say we have overcome that. There's people like me that have made this my life's mission, and so I can't really walk away from it. There are people in the tribe that will not come into one of these meetings and even be part of the conversation. It won't even take one of the jobs if it means they have to get a federal qualification. And so I think as a cut of people, I don't think we've got there. And I don't think we're all that close to (laughs) to being there um, in all reality because we really, people are being very strict about those qualifications, which can take lifetimes to get in themselves. I know indigenous people that have been burning since they were four years old too that could handle a prescribed burn better than about anyone I know. But are they empowered to do this? No, we're not there yet. Mm. A part of me thinks, why compromise? It's your ancestral land and you're being told what you can and cannot do on it. But like you said, it's been your life's mission. And if you try and work with what you have to regain that sovereignty over fire, and it's just one step or a few steps in the right direction, which will hopefully kind of lead into this desired change for the tribe as a whole. As you mentioned that prescribed burns are being increasingly seen as favorable to the state and federal authorities, and they're collaborating with you, and your people are sharing this millennia of knowledge, and you run the risk of the knowledge being co-opted. Tell us about how do you prevent something like that? Because you also said you want to be able, like if we were going to collaborate, you want to still be able to conduct the cultural burns. You don't want that knowledge being passed on to federal state agencies and then they take over. Yeah, and we're at risk for that. Over the course of my career, I've seen a lot of changes in local line officers and decision makers and and i know that things can change like that based on the opinions and beliefs of one individual and i've seen it switch both ways to where it's like someone's supportive and they come in and all of a sudden you have a great relationship you're doing great things someone else comes in and all that stops we put a lot out there and we don't get as much participation from our own as i would like to see But those people are knowledge holders too, and we don't get the complete picture without them. And so there's a lot of things that we don't speak of, even people that are deeply ingrained in the conversation. We get things coaxed out of us sometimes. But we try to retain 
pieces because there is a fear. It's like, oh, well, you're just going to go tell them everything and they're going to take it and they're going to abuse it and they're going to figure out a way to extract things out of our world and make money on it and leave us out. History has a tendency to repeat itself and that's what everyone sees happening in the world. So I don't think we've got to any point to where we have addressed that. We've tried to create a protocol with agreement with any researchers that come in to look at any particular piece of what we're doing and try to help build our storyline so people can understand. But I mean, that's ultimately it ends up just being a piece of paper that makes it, that limits us, <laughs> you know, in a lot of cases. And then those risks are never really identified with what the true risks are in those. But we're hoping that if it, eventually we end up with a society that has a little bit of empathy for our situation, and if we end up with people looking back at these documents in the context of free prayer and informed consent, then at least we have something documented saying that we consented to this activity or this action or this knowledge sharing under the premise that these were the risks that <laughs> were identified. And, and so there should be no other unforeseen risk should, should not have any weight. But, you know, those kind of things you got to be an attorney for to be able to interpret. I don't have many of those folks running around these days. Mm. I guess this is sort of like a, a TBD situation, right? Yeah. Fortunately. Are the traditional practices documented somewhere so that it's not lost for the Kirk? We've got some folks. I've been recording elders for a long time. We started some processes for labeling some of our information on whether it's only for family or only for ceremonial leaders or only only for, uh, you know, or if it could be for public consumption or or whatever, but that's a major effort to go through all those archives and make sure they're all labeled appropriately and have all the legal licensing in place to actually protect the stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. And so we started some of those processes and we've come up with some concepts, building off some really cool stuff that the Maori have done. And it's just, you know, we don't have the resources uh, financially to really make it happen consistently. And if I was to weigh the balance between two things, I would probably want to put some money towards getting some fire on the ground and actually bringing some people in that can that, that know the stuff. And But we've been teaching a lot of our youth how to do uh, video documentation and all of this stuff. We've been focusing heavily on our youth, and there are quite a few of them that are now you know, at first it was all about fisheries, yeah. and so we ended up with a whole generation of fish biologists that came fishing guides. And <laughs> <laughs> but now we, we've diversified that a little bit to where there's a little broader spectrum of background and they're pursuing. And they're now starting to come out of college and into the job market, a lot of passion and drive. And so I'm excited to see where they take it. That's great. A new generation of fire wielders. <laughs> yeah. So you're making some progress and you're coming to an understanding with different stakeholders in the process of bringing back fire to the land. But still, there are sociopolitical factors that kind of determine burn bans. And I can 
kind of hear the frustration in your voice <laughs> at times through this conversation about just bringing back fire to the land to its original intent. So given what's happening with COVID and then also just like I mentioned with sociopolitical factors that determine barn bans, what's your vision for how the Kuruk tribe can continue to forge forward? We continue to work on multiple fronts. We're building more relationships with the philanthropy sector. And we're hoping we may be able to build some more flexible frameworks around being able to support some more family-based burning activities and things like that in that February burn window where you don't really have that socio-political presence so much. We're working with the Western Climate Restoration Partnership to get large swaths of uh, NEPA coverage done. And we're working with CAL FIRE to do the crosswalk so that can be considered covered under the California Environmental Quality Act as well. And so you overcome some of those obstacles and some of the next ones will be the the liability piece and the cross-boundary burning piece that we still haven't quite got to yet. There's a lot to do and there's there's not a lot to do it. And so we've tried to start this intertribal convening project so we can pull California tribes together and indigenous practitioners and indigenous fire knowledge holders and have the discussion and set priorities and like create some strategies on how we want to all come together to make, make this work and uh, the COVID-19 situation kind of set us back on that because we can't come together but the good news is is we had some interviews today and hopefully we'll be bringing on a a contracted project manager for that effort and so we'll be be moving forward with figuring out if we're going to be able to have a face-to-face convening and if not how we adjust the funding with some of our funders to turn that into a more virtual event and or multiple virtual events. So if we can't make some change. Okay. Sounds like some more progress. That's good. So when we first talked, you mentioned that if things don't kind of progress in the direction that would be ideal for both parties, that it may just end up resulting in the tribes conducting the burning on native land. Is that something that you can speak to? And if not, it's okay. Well, I mean, that's kind of hard to speak to. I mean, I, you know, pretty soon someone wants to accuse you of something if something goes wrong. But I started noticing it a long time ago, and I put some discussions on it in our Ecocultural Resource Management Plan because I noticed early on, and I would go to, like, I'd go to talk at a grade school or something about ceremonial burning on off the mountain and you know just even saying the simple facts about the weeks act and this is what we're supposed to be doing and why for our ceremonies and all that and i've had kids like come up to me and be like i'll go burn it myself if they don't let us and it's like no let's try to do it in a friendly way we don't need all of our people in prison for arson and that doesn't give our youth much hope if they take that route and so, so, so it's been a delicate balance, and it's been something I've always been worried mm-hmm. about. It's like it's just a matter of time before one of these folks are just like, okay, well, I'm not waiting. I just hope we can get to the point where we can get enough happening, and to where 
where it doesn't have happen that way. Yeah. I don't know. It's kind of frustrating for me, but I'm sure it's far more frustrating for you. All right. Well, we're coming to the end of our conversation here. And I typically have a lightning round with our guests where I'll ask a series of four questions. And the first thing that comes to your mind, you answer. So are you ready? Sure. So the first question here is, what have you read, heard, or watched lately that has influenced you the most? Well, there's been a lot of articles currently that have come out on Indigenous burning, comparing our situation here in the West, Western states, to Indigenous burning in Australia. That's been exciting. Yeah, those are really cool. And um, I read one article, I can't remember the exact numbers, but they were saying in Australia, the Aborigines or the Indigenous people there, they have the practice cultural burns on almost 12 million acres of land per year or more, which is far less than what we do here in the U.S. It's a cultural practice that has gone on for, I mean, under colonized or settler colonialism longer in Australia than it has in in the U.S. So if you have any additional articles to share, please do send them over. I'd love to include them in our show notes. The next question here is, what is a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? Well, I've kind of found that finding some time to get away <laughs> has been probably the key to my ability to stay engaged. And you know, this spring, I was able to do it with um, some excessive gardening. But you know, getting out there in February and doing all the burning I can myself and just actually seeing the results of my work mm. is probably one of the biggest things out there. We did a family-based burn event, which ended up not having any tribal participation, which was kind of odd. But a lot of people from the community came out and we didn't even think it would burn because it rained a little bit the night before. But then after talking for an hour or so, it's like, well, actually it's ready to burn right over here. And we do some burning and then over here and then over here. Next thing you know, we were doing some significant burning and there was no risk and people learned a lot. So I think, you know, just making the time to get out and do what you're talking about is probably probably one of the most important things, at least in my life. That's great. It's really refreshing to hear you talk about your relationship with fire because I grew up in a household where fire is bad <laughs> and you just kind of grow up being afraid of it. But the way you talk about it, it sounds like a a romantic symbiotic relationship with fire yeah it can be very peaceful when you know you're doing it in a safe environment mm -hmm. yeah what's the best piece of advice you've received probably to listen to everybody one of my mentors for my entire time here at the department of natural resources he recently retired and he told me that he wanted me to carry on in his footsteps or whatever he wanted me to, he thought that i was the best choice to be the director here and he said that's because i listen to people mm -hmm. and told me to make sure that i continue to listen to people so i've been kind of paying attention to that one quite a bit more lately that's good it's definitely a talent to listen to everyone and to do so with intent and with an open mind i guess that kind of plays into what is your superpower. <laughs> a superpower. 
I guess I have a ability to read conditions and put fire in the right place at the right time and to where I can steer it around to where I want it to be. Mm. That's a pretty dope superpower. <laughs> yeah, when I was eight years old, I was burning by myself. I waited for the right time of day, and so I got there just to where I was trying to light a fire and it wouldn't take, and I was like, okay, it's time. And so I lit it, I built it up and got this one going, and I went over and I built this one going, and then I, just as this one was just about to go back out, I went over and got this one going, and then I cooled it just enough to pull, started pulling it together and could sustain itself. And it just got yeah. really big oh. and it's going, and everyone, people were getting scared, or like my brother was all scared. <laughs> and then I lit a little fire over here just as it got to a certain point, and then it just all kind of just got to the edge of the tree line and kind of folded back this way and dropped right down to a six inch flame length. And I was able to just go out and put it out with my foot and didn't see a single branch. Wow. I impressed myself on that one. I was. Just on the verge of being scary that time. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I wish I was a, maybe not a fly on the wall because I probably would have like got cinched somehow, but I wish I would have been able to witness that. All right. Well, how can we follow you on your journey? Well, everybody lives somewhere and there is ecologically balanced fire story, a human fire relationship story, where you're at too. It may not be one that can be brought back, like if there's a city growing on top of it or something, but but understanding the dynamics of that, of what it is, just even if it's understanding if the indigenous people of that place moved from place to place seasonality, and was that because of food, or was that because of fire, or a combination of both, or did they live permanently in place and have that relationship that enabled them to do so with fire? I think just starting to understand, people starting to understand those basics, I think, can help society get a better understanding that what is doesn't always necessarily have to be what can be, so or what has to be. Whether or not it's just recreating a food system that works better with your environment or a fire system that helps support your food system or whatever it is, you know, I think just connecting with place and finding a way to fit in those existing natural cycles. It's a direction that humans need to start to go. Yeah. I was reading about the indigenous peoples of Ohio, which is where I'm based right now. And it's been a number of tribes that have passed through. Apparently it was like a migratory route between the DC, Virginia area up to Canada. But I was reading that the the original indigenous group were the Shawnee. And over time, there were wars between some of the indigenous tribes that were passing along and Shawnee lost their claim to lands in Ohio. And I can't remember what the other tribes were that passed through or that they got into a war with. But the article I was reading about said that the Shawnee now have a headquarters in Oklahoma, I believe. And actually one here in, well, I don't know if it's Ohio or, but that was my little trivia about the indigenous peoples of Ohio. It's really interesting to learn about. All right. Well, if people wanted to learn more about the Karuk, 
and about traditional cultural burning practices amongst the Karuk. How can they do that? Well, I can't say I'm an expert on social media, but I've been using the hashtag Endow Action Now on Facebook and Twitter. And so whenever there's like a story relevant to what we got going on, I use that hashtag. No one else is using it. So okay. people search for that. They'll, they'll find stuff that, that we're doing or stuff that's really closely related to what we're doing with some partners or something. And then, you know, they could always read up on the Western Klamath Restoration Partnership or look at the tribe's website. The Western Klamath Restoration Partnership has a website and the tri- tribe has a website, which DNR has a Department of Natural Resources has some pages on that. There's a lot of great resources and videos and articles and all that stuff. It's not the easiest to navigate, but hopefully we can fix that soon. Yeah. All right. Is there anything else that you would like to add before we end here? Not that I can think of. Thanks for reaching out. That's been a pleasure. Yeah. Likewise. And thank you for telling us your story. And it's kind of just opened up a whole other world for me. So thank you for that. No problem. Hey all, thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.